love for us. So as we open our Bibles, as we prepare our hearts, as we get our souls ready to engage this beautiful piece of scripture, let us pray for God's blessing upon the word that we may know just how deep the Father's love is for us. Let's pray. God, we come to you with gratitude for your great love. We come to you with the hope that you have placed in our hearts. We come to you knowing that your love has paid our ransom, that you were wounded for us out of your great love for us. And so as we approach your word, as we read the scriptures together, may you open our hearts, our minds, and our souls to the great gift of your love and grace. May we receive this word to us this morning as a gift, and a gift given in the great love of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Vicki, um, in talking about the crossing and different things we can teach, mentioned, you know, martial arts, and I spent just a few years in that sport, and, and, and every sport has a certain culture around it, and, and every coach and teacher has their own uniqueness that they bring to it. And of the six instructors I had, my all-time favorite was this big, like almost my height, but, you know, a little more to him, um, guy named Joseph Walker. And uh, one thing, you know, if you're going to train in martial arts, to be trained by someone with the last name Walker, and then to watch Walker, Texas Ranger on Sunday afternoon for reruns, it's just a beautiful kind of full circle thing. But one thing that happens in full contact sports is people get hit, they get hurt, they get knocked down. Sometimes they get knocked all the way out of the ring if they're clumsy and didn't block well. 
That's a little bit of the, the uniqueness of the sport coming out. But, but we had this thing at, at Lowell that Mr. Walker instilled in us. You know, if, if you got knocked down and felt sorry for yourself too long, and he kind of assessed, like, you're not, like, medical attention injured. You're just kind of knocked down, more embarrassed. And you're like, oh, I'm, I'm hurt. He would just kind of lean over and say, but are you dead? No. Well, good. Then act like it. Are you dead? No. Good. Act like it. And so we'd have to get up and, and keep going. And we developed a certain culture of, of getting to the point where we didn't ever let him ask the question if, if we were dead or alive or not. We would come back rebounding as fast as we could, not licking our wounds for too long. Because there's a pretty big difference between being dead or being alive. Are you dead? Nope. Good. Act like it. Are you alive? Good. Act like it. You can fake being dead. It's pretty hard to fake being alive. You can be injured. You can be wounded. But there is still that great difference between being dead or being alive. And what the Apostle Paul is, is driving home in Ephesians as this book kind of builds its momentum of all of the high and heavenly things so that we can zero in more on what does it look like to get to the part where we say, good, you're alive and act like it. That's coming in future chapters. But at this point, we're using stark contrasted language of dead or alive. And the driving force that opens this chapter is the fact that we were dead before Christ, and in Christ we are alive. You can, in other places in scripture, we kind of have this different amounts of being alive. Are you just kind of living or living life to the fullest? But the point that's being made here is you were dead in your sin and transgressions. Dead. And you are alive in Christ Jesus. That, that in Christ, we who are in Christ, there is an opposite between being dead in the world or alive in Christ. This is the driving force of this chapter. And so this is the point where the question would be asked, are you dead? And the way the whole text is explained, these 10 verses, the answer is no, we're alive. Good. And thanks be to God that we are alive. Then we can start to go into a little bit more of if you're alive, act like it. And, and how do you act like it? Ephesians itself will give us more specifics as we go. But a few things that we can know from the get-go is if we are alive in Christ, if we know the difference between being dead and being alive, there should come with it some joy and some gratitude. And in fact, some awe and wonder in the fact that we have been made alive in Christ and that this is nothing short of a miracle that we are alive in Christ. We can get used to to being Christians in such a way that we can lose the gratitude, lose the love we had at first. But when we think about the difference between being dead or alive, it should remind us that our salvation is a miracle. And it is by grace that we have been saved, not by works so that no one can boast, but it is faith that is a gift of God. It is by grace that we have been saved. So friends, we are alive, 
alive in Christ, which at this point, as we go through Ephesians slowly and steadily, if we just remember that we are alive in Christ, it should start building a hunger and an appetite for us And how do we live out our gratitude and joy for that life that we have in Christ? Now, does that mean that life is easy? No. In fact, when Jesus talks to his disciples, he tells them that it's like taking up your cross to follow him. But does it mean that it's good? Yes. Does it mean that we're not going to be wounded? No. In fact, all of us are wounded, and the beauty of Jesus is that Jesus can can recognize and understand our hurts, our wounds, because we're all going to be a little bit wounded, or a lot bit wounded. Our bodies are going to be wounded and injured over time. Division and hatred will wound our heart and spirit. Broken relationships will wound us and hurt us. Experiencing death and loss will wound and hurt us, but we worship the wounded healer, Jesus, who we just sang about, who his wounds paid our ransom. So are we wounded people? Yes, absolutely. But does that make us dead? No. We are wounded people who are alive because we serve and follow and love a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is also wounded but is alive, thanks be to God. Because Christ was here. He he lived, he died, and he rose again. We are wounded, but we are alive. And so maybe you didn't have the type of coach like a Mr. Walker, or maybe you did, who would just ask you, maybe in your faith, are you dead? Well, no, I'm alive. Well, good. Act like it. Give thanks to God for it, first in in worship and in gratitude from the posture of our heart, but we get to live out that gratitude. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions. Not just inconvenience, not just, oh, I'm doing pretty good, making my way through life, but no, no. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you, you plural, as Pastor Audrey mentioned, it's, it's always the plural you here. This is, this is written to a church just like us, in which you, we, used to live when we followed the ways of this world and the rulers of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now, Verse 2 kind of has that interesting line that maybe catches us, um, catches our attention or maybe catches us off guard. The ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? And, and it's as if it's one of those moments in Scripture, since Scripture was written 2,000 years ago, where the author is writing with some language that they're used to and familiar with, and, and we play a little bit of catch-up to that context. The ruler of the kingdom of the air. Where that really gets unpacked more is in Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll get there this summer. But in Ephesians 6, the same wording phrases are used again. And and this is the, the beginning of the armor of God passage, which in some ways is the most familiar part to us um, from Ephesians. I would argue, though, that when we get to Ephesians 6 and the armor of God, we will appreciate it more by first having gone through the rest of the book, building up to chapter 6. But in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, using that same kind of language against this uh, kingdom of the air, these rulers, Paul writes this, 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, meaning not ultimately against people. People of this world are not your enemies as much as, continuing in the verse, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now that's even more catching off guard. If, if, if you're thinking of spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, I tend to think of the heavenly realms as the good place where God is, and hearing the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms uh, seems to be not what I'm used to thinking. Here's in a simplified format what we mean. There are forces in the air. In, in Paul's worldview and the way he communicates the gospel to the Ephesians is this reminder that, okay, in the air there are those who are maybe trying to lead us. Imagine, if you will, not, not to give you nightmares, but imagine kind of a hand from the air just trying to steer you and direct you. This is the ruler of the kingdom of the air to try to lead you and guide you to the cravings of your flesh, to your bodily desires, not to give delight to God, but to try to satisfy yourself without God. This is the ruler of the air. But there's this other layer on top, the highest of the heavenly realms where the throne of God is. And when we are in Christ, we go from being dead, controlled by the kingdom of the air, maybe just that extra hand that wants to guide and direct us. And it's like an override that in Christ, we are alive. And there's the hand of God that will direct us instead in ways of righteousness and holiness. For us, we don't do probably as much thinking about spirits in the air and we do think of more of the maybe hell being beneath us, heaven being above us. And in this worldview that Ephesians was written in, when, when we understand the way, the way the gospel is communicated, there's just a lot going on. I imagine um, if you, you've seen the show uh, Wipeout, I think it is, you know, where the people try to go through those crazy obstacle courses and there's water beneath them and they're trying to just jump from one thing to the next. And inevitably what makes the show funny is they're going to get knocked off and fall into the water. Those are just comical shows to watch. It's like American Ninja Warrior, but with a more of a padded environment. There's things trying to knock you off. That's the kingdoms of the air. And then it's like there's something beneath you that's waiting to catch you. And I don't know why I kind of want to do one of like a Venus flytrap motion for that. Just, you know, there's, there's, there's someone who's kind of out to get you above you that wants to push you off course. And then there's someone beneath you waiting to say, ah, chomp, 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 now you're mine. That happens when we are dead in our sins and transgressions, when, when we are moved about by something other than God's grace. And what the Apostle Paul is setting up for us here in Ephesians 2 is to say, it is the God of the heavens, the highest heaven who is at work. It is the Holy Spirit who is guiding and directing you and that you have been overridden by God's grace that you just can't help yourself now but to be directed instead by God in the path that God expects and asks us to go. And we do so lovingly with gratitude the spirit of the air is like the in-between, something that's competing for us because the devil and his schemers want us. 
but instead we start with this foundational understanding that we are not dead, but we are alive in Christ. And when we are alive in Christ, we move with Jesus. In verse 3, we're told all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying these cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts, essentially following the appetites that will never be satisfied. And what's interesting is to say all of us also lived that way, meaning none of us were born a little better. We all start on the same playing field. We were all, as, as the letter tells us, deserving of wrath. This is something important and even a change that, that Paul as a young Pharisee would have believed that as a Jew, he was maybe created a little bit ahead of the game because he had the law to rescue him. But now he's saying, no, 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 no. Jew or Gentile, as, as Paul has, has witnessed to the Gentiles and seen God at work within them, he has realized and grown in knowing that all of us were on the same playing field. All of us were dead, but now we are alive in Christ Jesus. For us as a church, to know that all of us, none of us got a head start on this. We all were deserving of wrath. But by God's grace, we are alive. And why? Why did we go from dead to alive? Because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive, no longer dead, but alive, fully alive, with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, for it is by grace that you have been saved. It is by grace that we have been saved, and this should fascinate us for all of our lives following Jesus. There should be just a part of us that's always awestruck by God's amazing grace. And that's why we have to think in terms of dead or alive, not sorta kinda, but dead or alive. And we are alive in Christ Jesus. Wounded, yes. Struggling, yes. Facing hardships, yes. But are you dead? No. Even when our bodies die here on this earth, we are still just as, if not more, fully alive in Christ. For it is by grace that you have been made alive. By grace that you have been saved, this miracle of salvation through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Friends, the gift of God is faith. We didn't come up with faith on our own. We wouldn't be able to sustain faith on our own. It is, grammatically speaking and spiritually understanding, the gift of God is faith to receive this grace. Our faith is a gift of God, this not of yourselves. We are fully alive through faith, and that in itself is a gift. It's the grace of God at work within us. So we get to act like it, and not just acting, but we get to be like that. Faith as a gift, not by works, so that no one can boast. People who are, you know, get under our skin might be those who like to take credit for things that they didn't actually do. Most of us can probably think of a, a coworker 
who just kind of has that attitude. There's some boasting. There's some taking credit for things that aren't theirs. School projects, as the old joke goes, at my funeral, I hope my classmates uh, can be my pallbearers just so my group assignment partners can let me down one more time. If you were the academic overachiever, you're still probably jaded by some of those memories. I'm not because I wasn't the academic overachiever. <laughs> would have had a better G GPA in seminary if Caitlin and I would have gone at the same time. It's more fair this way. But good works are not the thing we get to boast about. It wasn't our doing that God saved us. We don't get to boast about it. We don't get to brag. We don't get to take credit that we saved ourselves. We were rescued. We were rescued. We don't take credit. We can't boast that we somehow earned God's favor or did any of the things that brought about our salvation. We don't get to boast. We have nothing to brag about. The only thing that we can boast about is a second-hand way in which we celebrate God's great grace and love for us. I will not boast in anything except for Christ and his resurrection. We don't take credit for saving ourselves. It would be as if the person who administered CPR to us said, oh, I saved myself, my heart's beating on its own. But you were dead and you were rescued. You were rescued. It is by grace that you have been made alive. It is by grace that you have been saved. We don't get to take credit for that which was done for us. Now, that doesn't mean that we actually feel worse about ourselves. It does humble us, but it humbles us to come to God with gratitude for this great gift. It's not by works, so that no one can boast, because all of us were on the same playing field, and we were all rescued because of God's great love for us. And then verse 10, this kind of closing thought of this section, for we are God's handiwork. God's handiwork. I like that. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So verse 9, we're told this isn't by works so that no one can boast. But in verse 10, we're told that since we are rescued and saved and made alive, we are God's handiwork, which means we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So be humbled in knowing that we were dead and rescued and made alive. We give thanks to this for God. But we're also God's handiwork. If you look in the mirror, next time, next time you're anywhere near a mirror, look in the mirror and just say to yourself, you are God's handiwork. This is not something to boast about, but this is something to be celebrated and grateful for. You are God's handiwork. And you get to do good works, not to pat yourself on the back or to earn medals and ribbons and trophies for heaven, but to do the things that Jesus taught us to do. You are God's handiwork. Now, to, ra to wrap our minds around this in maybe a simple way on earth to point us towards the reality of heaven, of us being God's handiwork, Imagine even some of the life skills that we anticipate and look forward to doing at, at the crossing. Imagine the time that you, you teach a child to do something. 
and they learn to do it on their own. It seems that they're doing it all on their own. Children are fast learners, and they especially love to learn from their parents. When they learn something new, it's like they get to do it all on their own. And yet the teacher, the master, knows that they only know what to do because they were taught. And it brings delight to God to see us, God's handiwork, doing the things that God taught us to do. I think about how um, when I was younger, my parents taught me how to use a chainsaw. Very useful skill. And then when trees fall down, we can cut them up on our own. And I can say, look what I did all on my own. And mom and dad would say, good job. <laughs> You're really useful. But also, I only know how to do what I do because I was taught how to do it. And it brings delight to my mother and father when I do the things that they would teach me to do. Less delight when we do other things that they didn't teach us to do or told us not to do. But that delight of watching your child do something you taught them to do, to celebrate that they can do it all on their own. Last summer, I taught Ada how to shoot bow and arrow. And now she can do it all on her own, which is terrifying and awesome. But she knows how to do the things that she was taught to do. And it is a delight to watch. Earlier this week, my son Ben and I were sitting watching a particular movie called Star Wars Return of the Jedi. He's not too young for it. And there's a character on there that, that is not ever called by name in the show. Ben and I are sitting, at the, sitting watching TV. And he points at the TV and he says, that's Salacious Crumb. I was like, yes, it is. You are my handiwork. He knows it all on his own, but he knows it because he was taught it. Friends, as we continue this journey through the book of Ephesians, know this, you are God's handiwork. You are loved. You are gifted. You are equipped. Everyone here can learn something from you. We have something that we can teach someone else. That's part of the point that we focus on with the crossing. We are God's handiwork, equipped to do good works, to celebrate the, that we can do the things that God taught us to do. And when we do, when we practice being God's handiwork, it brings delight to God our Savior, the wounded healer, who loves us, who rescued us, who by his good grace brought us from death to life. And not just to rescue us and set us on a corner and say, good job, you're rescued, but to then say, go and do the things I taught you and take joy in them and know that I, your loving father from the highest heaven, overriding these principalities of the air, will take great delight in it. Friends, you are God's handiwork. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.